You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have another extra special guest. Her name is Lisa Jones. She's CEO of Amundi US. That's the American division of French asset management giant Amundi. They could be the largest asset manager that most people are unfamiliar with. They run over $2 trillion, about 1.73 trillion euros. Uh, that's a lot of money. They're, they're the second largest asset manager in Europe after Allianz. They're one of the top 10 asset managers. They're, they're just immense. Uh, uh, Lisa Jones' division is over $100 billion, and she really has a unique perspective uh, on the asset management business. She's worked at a number of places, um, usually uh, switching jobs because her firm was acquired or uh, she was offered a bigger job at, a, at another shop. So she's been at places like Eaton Vance and Pioneer Funds and, and Morgan Stanley and MFS. Uh, so she knows all there is to know about all three parts of the industry, the the what some people call client-facing, back office, and and middle part of the office, which is the actual asset management. She's uniquely qualified to discuss what's going on in the industry, where it's been, and, and where it's likely to, to end up. I found the conversation to be absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. So with no further ado... My conversation with Amundi U.S.'s CEO, Lisa Jones. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Lisa Jones. She is the CEO of Amundi U.S., the $100 billion U.S. arm of Europe's second largest asset manager, Amundi Amundi proper manages over $2 trillion in assets. Uh, they're one of the 10 largest asset managers in the world with over 100 million clients in 36 countries, about 4,500 employees. Lisa Jones, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me here today. How My pleasure. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for a while. I, I think of Amundi as, as really one of the largest asset managers that a lot of people, in, especially in the U.S., haven't heard of. But before we get to Amundi, let's talk a little bit about your early career experience. You, you come out of Trinity College with a bachelor's in economics, and you start at MFS Investment Management. Tell us a little bit about your early experiences in the industry. So 
you know I've been working for 30 years, so when you say tell me about your early experiences, <laughs> I'll make sure we don't go on for so long. But actually, prior to MFS, I started working at EF Hutton. For those of your listeners who remember EF Hutton, Trinity is in Hartford. And at that point in time, you went to New York or you went to Boston. And I was from Boston, so I wanted to take a shot at working in New York City. And I started working for EF Hutton and worked there for a few years, uh, really worked there through the crisis of 1980, you know, the stock market crash um, in the late 1980s and started in customer service of EF Hutton for those brokerage accounts where shareholders wanted to call and ask questions and get some answers. It was a great introduction into being in a client-facing role. And so from there, I went to work at MFS in Boston. I joined MFS in 1988. I joined MFS as a wholesaler covering the bank channel. The territory was the Northeast. And back then, in the bank channel, the Northeast was really main down to Virginia. And it was in the early days where, beyond bank trust departments, banks were beginning to have licensed investment professionals sit in their lobbies to offer alternatives to banking customers. And that was my first experience working at MFS as a wholesaler. I then, as the time went on, began to become in-house more in a management role and assume responsibility for running the bank channel at MFS. And keep in mind, you know, as we think about the world of investing today and talking about low interest rates, this is a period of time when CDs were double-digit, treasuries were double-digit, and so it was quite a different environment for selling investment products in yields at that at, at that point in time. So I was at MFS for a total of 16 or so years. Years. I also spent some time on the institutional side, running the global institutional business for MFS at that time. So, so let's talk a little bit about that global institutional business. Eventually, you end up as global head of distribution at Morgan Stanley's. Uh, what enabled you to climb to the top of that ladder, and how different is institutional and distribution from what people typically think of as individual investing? So today I would say that those lines between the two groups are blurring, but let's go back to the point in time of when I transitioned from what we would call the kind of retail or the distribution side to the institutional side. Being responsible for running the bank channel at that time I was um, engaged with the bank trust departments, and they would be hiring external managers to offer investment solutions to trust clients. And I began working very closely with the portfolio managers and becoming more um, understanding and involved and, frankly, really intrigued with portfolio construction and portfolio management. And so as the business at MFS grew, the opportunity for me to transition to the institutional side was presented to me. So I enjoyed how the PMs put portfolios together, how they thought about risks, how they thought about buy and sell discipline. And the institutional side got me much closer to overall portfolio construction and portfolio management. And as U.S. asset management firms began to want to go global 
and enter international markets. Um, my role was expanded into global head of institutional, where MFS was in multiple different markets, kind of offering our investment solutions and strategies to sovereign wealth funds, central banks, uh, and pension fund investors. And so that was uh, the opportunity to go from retail to distribution. Mm-hmm. When you bring those two together, um, I then, from MFS, I actually went to Eaton Vance to run the Eaton Vance Global Institutional Business. And I got a call out of the blue from the former CEO of MFS when I was there, Jeff Shames. Many of your longtime listeners may remember Jeff. And he had taken a role at MFS, uh, at Morgan Stanley Investment Management as an advisor. And at that time, Morgan Stanley Investment Management was looking for a new role, global head of distribution, which encompassed both institutional and retail distribution on a global scale. So my experience at both MFS and Eaton Vance on the retail and the institutional side gave me the global awareness, the retail and the institutional background, serving multiple different types of clients, and it fully wrapped up into that role at MSIM on being global head of distribution. So how do you make the leap from Morgan Stanley, where you're really on on what I think a lot of people would perceive as an institutional sales side, to mm-hmm. Amundi in 2014, where really you're running the whole shooting match for at least for the U.S. arm, which is, you know, $100 billion is still real money. Great question. So as I've worked at different organizations, I became familiar with and really became a student of culture. And when you have the magic of a positive culture and you can bring people together, uh, you can create an environment where people have fun, you, you treat your clients and your employees exceptionally well. And culture is a key aspect of long-term success. And having observed multiple cultures across the many firms, I knew that I wanted to be a champion of a culture. And it is easier when you have influence over the entire organization rather than when you have only influence over the distribution side, institutional, or retail. And in 2014, prior to being known as a Monday, the firm was Pioneer Investments. Ah, Pioneer Investments has been just, I mean, you know Pioneer, right? We've been in the market since 1928, launched one of America's first mutual funds, and having worked in and around the Boston community in the asset management space for a long time, always had tremendous respect for Pioneer Investments knew some of the employees that were working at Pioneer Investments. Some of them have worked for me at other organizations. And Pioneer was looking for a U.S. CEO and wanted the profile of the U.S. CEO to be someone that comes from a client-facing background. And so the opportunity for me was, one, it was a profile that I had, But number two, because I knew that I had great experience and breadth across multiple firms, working across an organization, and the value I believe that I brought to the firm, you know, at the time and hopefully still today, if you talk to my employees, is an appreciation for culture, an appreciation of working together, and in particular for my investment team, having worked at such broad 
based asset management firms in the way of investment offerings and product. In essence, I have been part of teams that have launched, sold, retained, defended, closed all types of investment strategies across multiple market cycles to multiple geographies and multiple channels. So while I've never had the opportunity to actually run money, all that's important around it that is really important to portfolio managers, you know, being investment-led, consistency and repeatability of an investment process, taking the long-term view, that was complementary to the investment team here. And fortunately, I was given the opportunity to take the role in 2014. Uh, the organization at that time, very interestingly, was up for sale. It was owned by Unicredit Bank, uh, a large Italian-based bank who had acquired Pioneer in the year 2000. So the employees at Pioneer Investments had exposure and had been familiar with going through an integration and being purchased by a European-based right. financial institution. And in 2017, the tra- transaction closed with the Monday acquiring Pioneer Investments. Got it. So, so I want to stay with culture, which you've, you've referenced a couple of times, and ask, what was it like trying to maintain that sense of corporate culture and objectives and the whole team all pulling in the same direction during the lockdown, during the pandemic when everybody had to work from home and there was a lot of uncertainty as to what was going to happen next and people were genuinely nervous. Tell us what you did to maintain that corporate culture. It's been one of the greatest uh, challenges and learnings, I think, for anyone who's in a position of leadership that we've experienced over the last 18 or 20 months. And if you recall, in March of 2020, when we all went home to work remotely, we had put out messages that we expect to be back in the office in 30 days. So when we went remote, I didn't give it any thought other than let's stay in contact with everyone, let's continue to have our meetings. And as 30 went to 60, went to 90, went to 18 months later, immediately you had to kind of shift stage right. And what I ended up really bringing into the organ, bringing into this kind of leadership during a COVID environment is my communication skills. And so I adapted my ability to walk the halls and be with people to putting together a series of programs on how do I remain connected and how do we be transparent and how do we communicate. So in the first several weeks, I sent out a daily email message to the organization. And it was as simple as go out for a walk and get some fresh air, or here's a final that we participated in virtually, or here's what's going on in the investment department, or here's the news from our IT department as we've all gone remotely. And people were positively responding to those daily email messages. And as the days and weeks went on, the daily notes became too tactical, and we needed to shift a bit more strategically. So I implemented both a weekly All-Americas conference call with everyone dialing in, and it was 30 minutes because we were, we were all starting to experience kind of uh, burnout fatigue with the multiple Zoom calls right. that you launched. Zoom fatigue, yeah, and for sure. Zoom fatigue, right? And I also launched weekly coffees 
with Lisa. It was every Thursday from 10 to 10.45, and I limited the group to 8 or 10 people. Sign up. Let's watch your cat, you know, run across your your keyboard. Let's listen to the kids screaming (laughs) in the background. Let's talk about what it's like to work remotely. And so culture, for me, during that pandemic, was best supported by being present in the new ways that we had to be present. And we continued that really through still to this day. While many of us are back in the office, still on a voluntary basis, my weekly calls are now every two weeks. In fact, later on today, we're doing a virtual town hall with all employees. But we've had to adapt our communication skills that we've developed as leaders into new ways. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I think it was the Washington Post that had a uh, column this week that workers are, are putting on clothes and going back to the office only to spend all day on Zoom calls. How do you avoid those circumstances, or are you guys going to continue um, to be a little bit hybrid where people come into the office partly and work from home partly? So we have rolled out a we're all coming back into the office on October the 18th. Our offices have been open since June on a voluntary basis, and we're seeing more and more people come into our offices, um, in particular Boston and Durham, North Carolina. And what we really talked about, to your point, is it doesn't make sense if we're all commuting an hour to come into the office to be on a Zoom call. Because what we know is productivity is super good working in remote locations. So what we've tried to challenge ourselves with is that the home office remains as a place of productivity. And the physical office at 60 State Street remains the place for collaboration. So as we go to a hybrid model and we're asking people to come back three days a week, any three days that you want, but we're asking the department heads to make sure that you're scheduling and hosting your team meetings all on one day where you're asking all employees to come back into the office of your team. So you can have that team meeting and you can have that collaboration because the Zoom calls work when everyone is remote. It gets more challenging when some are remote and some are sitting around a table. You you end up getting a very different meeting dynamic that is not all that productive. So we've thought about that and that's the way that we're going to try to ensure that you're not sitting all by yourself on Zoom calls because frankly you could do that from home. Hmm, quite quite interesting. Tell us a little bit about your role. What do you do as CEO of Amundi U.S.? So 
a CEO of a Monday U.S. Barry, and also I bring in Canada and Latin America as heads of those regions as well. So we have offices that I'm responsible for from Montreal, Toronto, Boston, Durham, North Carolina, Miami, Mexico City, and Santiago, Chile. So all up and down the America's perimeter. Mm -hmm. From a U.S. perspective, we are a full organization of all the infrastructure you would expect for a large asset management firm, portfolio management, trading, legal, risk, compliance, IT, marketing, distribution, et cetera. So my responsibility is across all of those aspects of front, middle, and back office as we distribute our investment solutions here throughout the Americas. But we also, if you will, export our investment capabilities outside of the Americas. And as a member of the Global Executive Committee of Amundi, I work very closely with the other countries and regions whose clients are interested in U.S. dollar-denominated product. Hmm. So so let's talk a little bit about um, the global giant that is Amundi with over $2 trillion in asset. You know, when I, when I look at the company and I research what they do, there really isn't an area of the investment world that Amundi doesn't touch upon. So let me ask you some, some broad questions about that, starting with what are you hearing from investors today, be they U.S. or international? What, what sort of questions are investors asking? I'm going to answer that in two ways. One, strategically, clients today are interested in working with firms where they can develop a partnership with, kind of a go-to asset management firm. If you have a challenge with pension funding or you're distributing through financial advisors and you want to work with a handful of companies that can help you solve a problem. So one, clients want to position uh, with firms in a partnership way. Second, clients are truly interested in problem solving. We're in a persistently low-rate environment. So how do I seek yield? on a global basis, on a local basis? How do I save for retirement? How do I save for all of those longer-term aspects? Clients are also wanting transparency from their asset management partners. Like we're, we're all very good as human beings of sharing very good news, but when we have bad news to share, I think that that's what distinguishes some firms from others, and we try to be extremely transparent and timely with all the information that we're sharing with clients. And more specifically, over the last few years, with the growth of ESG, whether it's internationally or here in the United States, our clients, retail and institutional, are asking many questions about ESG and net zero and climate change. And we're hoping to position ourselves as a trusted advisor with those clients. So let's talk a little bit about ESG because there's some really interesting things. First, I've been hearing for decades, literally decades, that this is the next big thing in asset management. And while it certainly has captured a lot of mind share, I don't get the sense that it's captured all that much in terms of capital flows. And, and you see surveys of the next generation who's going to inherit wealth, either women as, as the inheritors um, from the spouse or their kids Everybody says they like the idea of ESG investing, and everybody says they want to put their money to work that way, but it hasn't really shown up dramatically anyway 
in the capital flows. What what are your thoughts on that? So I, I share similar perspectives um, with you. One, having been in this business for a long period of time, five years ago when ESG kind of really, I would say, in a more pronounced way became topical, I immediately thought back to my earlier days on the institutional side when socially responsible investing on behalf of certain endowments or charitable organizations were prevalent. And many, not all, many had um, disappointing experiences from an investment return perspective. And they did so because some were completely eliminating all sectors or all you know, certain financial uh, institutions. And so that lack of exposure or that exclusionary approach created certain disappointing returns. So I immediately thought of that, that environment that I grew up in. And the big question started to say, can I have good investment performance while also pursuing a path on ESG investing? And many of those conversations, while they still exist, I do believe that what we have seen over the last few years, in particular from a U.S., and I can comment from outside of the United States, that investing for the long term and investing your money so over the long term you, you grow your wealth for retirement or saving for college, for many, that is a primary concern, and that will always drive some capital flows increasingly what we're finding, even from a fundamental investment perspective, that as you consider investing in a particular company, whether it's on the equity or the debt side, as you consider all risks that can be involved, cash flow risk, change of company management, investment in um, you know, R&D for certain sectors, many of the risks that we have always considered and increasingly are considering are some of those ESG risks, an hmm. environmental disaster or governance issue. So integrating those considerations into an investment process is very good risk management. Now you come to the point about kind of millennials, kind of our kids' generations. And we do find, and the science and the statistics support that, that certain generations are very interested in doing well for the planet, investing within purpose, investing with intentionality. And what we're experiencing, and in fact, at a Monday, you know, we're considering this ourselves, is in launching particular investment solutions that are impact-oriented. So up front, if someone is interested in net zero, or decarbonizing a footprint, or investing for clean water, that those investment objectives are clear and stated right up front so that there's no confusion. We're all um, eagerly anticipating, and I would say welcoming, further regulation and clarity for both companies and asset management firms around these definitions of terms, because there's still some great confusion that um, that does exist. And we know that the change of administration with the Biden administration, much, you know, that administration is uh, much more friendly towards ESG investing or climate change and some regulation that's coming out. From a European perspective, and this is where being based in Paris, France, is of great interest to our clients in the United States, because Europe has been 
forward thinking, forward looking, and well ahead of other regions when it comes to ESG investing. And when our institutional clients or retail clients in the U.S. are are interested in a conversation or a different perspective, being based in Paris, you know, you've got the Paris Accord, you have climate right, change, right. you have all of that. It's a it's a unique lens. So you're right. There's so much talk about it. There are some pretty considerable flows on a global basis. So of our 1.7 trillion euros that you mentioned, 800 billion euros is in kind of ESG type allocation. Really, almost half. That's amazing. It's considerable. It is. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not surprised by that because a. It seems like Europe is is far more um, ahead of the curve in terms of legislation, but that almost doesn't matter because if the generational surveys are accurate and the millennials and their ilk are really going to put their money where their mouths are, um, this is going to happen organically anyway. There will be, beyond just just using ESG as a risk factor, uh, it appears that there is going to be a lot of money moving in that direction. It may take a couple of decades, but that's what we're likely mm-hmm. to see um, as money moves from uh, the boomers to the Gen X, Gen Y, and, and millennials. I agree with you, yes. So so let's stick with the concept of, of the international perspective. Um, you mentioned uh, your headquartered, uh, the parent company is headquartered in Paris, Generally speaking, overseas markets, uh, be they developed or emerging, tend to be either cheaper or much cheaper uh, than the U.S. lately. What are your thoughts about valuations globally? So on a global perspective, you know, let's kind of stay at a, at a top line level for a moment. You know, the, the pandemic and the environment that we've been in over the last 18 to 20 months or so has uh, been a positive for active management. So in the United States, states we're all about active management. That's what we do. And prior to the pandemic, you saw, um, you know, five or six companies in particular from a U.S. perspective that was really driving the returns of the S&P 500 and making it so difficult for active managers to really compete and outperform. And what the pandemic has introduced over the last many months or so is more breadth across where we're seeing companies kind of contribute to the overall growth and the earnings. So whether it's the stay-at-home boom and the things that we were buying when we weren't going into stores, um, you know, the breadth of the marketplace expanded. And so unlike prior to the pandemic when you had five stocks, I think returning 55, 56% in 2019, you have a broader suite. So active management and selecting those companies that um, are attractive in this broader breadth is appropriate both on a European basis as well as from a U.S. perspective. What we've also seen first half of the year to kind of the second half of the year is that there was great enthusiasm about the economies reopening in the United States and in Europe. The emerging markets a little bit further behind because the pace by which vaccinations were occurring was less behind than in the developed markets, as we know. And then all of a sudden, the Delta variant kind of started to pop up and the exuberance 
in May and June started to fall a little bit away um, in the months of kind of July and August and September, as we've been experiencing over the last several months or so. So what we do expect on a global basis is what we are seeing is a bit of a reflation in the United States as a result of more vaccinations, um, kind of a wider market contribution. And we have the whole growth to value rotation, which we started to see earlier in the year, slow down a little bit. But our view is that we are going to see a bit more of that growth to value rotation. And that happened to support more positive views from a European perspective, given the underlying economy and some of the companies. So growth to value rotation, um, the positivity rates. I was in Paris most recently, and I was super impressed with how the pandemic, the vaccinations, the masking, the walking about was really administered um, there. And I think that the economies are really quickly rebounding as well. So in this environment, we are positive on equities. We have to be careful of valuations, active management, and selecting those companies that are at an appropriate valuation that can benefit from this cycle of where we are in, uh, we're still quite positive on over the long term. And it's worth mentioning, in the beginning of the vaccine rollout, the U.S. was one of the fastest countries, um, right. uh, top three in terms of getting vaccinations out there. But over the past six months, the U.S. has fallen behind. I think we're something like 37th now. Um, with a total vaccination rate of 55% and an eligible vaccination rate of about 65%. Europe, far ahead of us, a lot of countries at 65, 75, Mm -hmm. 85%. Uh, How is that playing out in terms of their economy? Is their reopening going appreciably better than some of the faltering we're seeing here in the U.S., where we're Along the Gulf Coast and South Dakota and Idaho, the hospitals are overwhelmed again. So we probably will all agree that going back to full lockdowns is not something that we would anticipate. And so learning to live with the variant and getting vaccination rates up is really critically important. And again, what I could experience when I was traveling a week or so ago You know, the lines for the museums and the lovely little outdoor coffee shops and just kind of walking about, everyone is walking about. But there continue to be pretty, you know, pretty clear guidelines. You've got to show your vaccination pass to get into museums or buildings or department stores. You know, you you can go certain places and do certain things and people are all kind of masking up. So... I do find that they are much more serious. Again, I was only in Paris, that they are much more serious. And as we know, in certain states in the United States, I'm sitting here in Boston, you know, we're one of the top three, uh, Massachusetts, one of the top three or five states in the country in the way of vaccination rate. And just this morning, most recently, you know, the overall kind of infection rate has fallen again below 2%. So, we're, we're on the right trajectory. It's in some of these states, as you suggest, where the hospitalizations and the access to good health care 
is becoming problematic again. And those states that are more aggressive in getting their population vaccinated are seeing their economies kind of work and try to get back to a bit of a, a normal lifestyle. Yeah, we're recording this on a Tuesday. I have a dinner in the city tonight with about a dozen people. And the only reason I'm comfortable going to that dinner or for a giant 2,000 person conference I went to two weeks ago is that New York City and New York State both require proof of vaccination uh, for entry. Now, that's not a guarantee, but at least I feel like I'm not exposing Correct. myself to people who may be behaving recklessly. If at this stage of the, you know, where, here we are, it's practically the fourth quarter of 2021. If you're not vaccinated by now, I have to assume that the rest of your daily behavior is not exactly risk averse. And I don't want to be exposed to you. Forget the politics. I'm concerned about the economic impacts of those folks and what it means for local businesses. Yeah. You know, the science is pretty clear. And I understand there's skepticism for some around vaccinations. But my gosh, you know, we're an investment manager, so we have healthcare analysts coming in here all the time. We have physicians giving us updates. The science is pretty clear on the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. So what gives people comfort, and I think New York is doing a brilliant job. My daughter lives in Brooklyn, so I experience the same. You know, knowing that when you're going into a place and you're surrounded by people that are vaccinated, well, nothing is 100%. It just allows you to feel more safe. Right. It, it, you're putting the odds in, in your um, side. So, so let's, let's move beyond um, the local economy and vaccination. And I want to stick with the international theme and ask you a couple of questions um, about China. China is one of the biggest emerging markets there are. They're the second largest economy in the world. A, a lot of investors have been perplexed by their actions towards some of their largest companies and best-known tech companies. What should investors make about this new crackdown uh, coming from the world's second-largest economy? So I'm going to have multiple personalities when I answer this question for it's, you. There is no simple answer, so feel free to okay. – you know, our listeners appreciate nuance, so, so feel free to, to be internally contradictory. So on the one hand, we know that geopolitical risk is something that we have lived with and we will continue to live with, and that the strain between U.S. and China relations is evident, and the crackdowns and the controls are present. Um, with, with With Amundi being based in Paris, being European, and not necessarily having the same temperature between, you know, a U.S. and a China relations. Investing in China and growing our business in China is of strategic importance for the organization. And Amundi was selected as, I believe, one of the first, maybe the first foreign asset management firms to enter into, you know, a joint venture with the Bank of China and to help kind of grow that business and that presence of professional money management for Chinese investors. So it is something that we have to watch, you know, from a portfolio construction perspective um, and portfolio management perspective. The U.S. 
you know, most of our assets under management are uh, U.S. source, so U.S. equities, U.S. fixed income. However, we do manage global equity portfolios. We manage global high-yield portfolios that can invest in some of these markets. We tend to be more large cap, not as speculative, um, and we always remain cautious when we don't have a clear understanding of earnings or accounting principles and practices. So it's it's one of those risks that will be with us for a long period of time. For some institutional investors, because we have these conversations all the time, um, allocating to uh, the to, to China in particular is both of tactical as well as strategic long-term importance. And we're happy to have those conversations. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What, what sort of questions are you getting from clients about cryptocurrencies uh does your institutional demand um uh, are you seeing that from clients for for cryptos uh, i i keep hearing from a lot of people who are um crypto curious it's probably the best <laughs> phrase i've heard for that a crypto crazy maybe oh, well there's um, that also <laughs> yeah i mean it's easy for us because we don't offer it we don't get involved with it we're not um, in in the business of working with our clients on cryptocurrency. You know, the view is today that it's much too speculative for the conservative profile and, um, you know, and platform that we put forth to institutional clients and to some of our retail clients. It's, it's a bit at a crossroad of, uh, you know, interesting technology innovation. Uh, is it really money? Does it really have, you know, the same value as currencies that we know of today? Uh, so our view is, we, clients obviously are talking about it, but it's not something that we are offering today with our clients. So I that doesn't surprise me. We we whenever we get the question, the challenge is always, uh, how do we custody this? How can we make sure yeah. that you're not part of the, depending on which study you see, twenty twenty five percent or more of those people who have either lost a password or had the hard um, hardware damaged, so they no longer can access that. That's nothing that we don't have a nobody has a solution for that yet. Uh, although I'd imagine one would be coming uh, eventually. Most probably. And, you know, we'd rather not be a market leader in that. And, and I think also as people talk about cryptocurrency, some automatically believe it's just Bitcoin or just this. I mean, there's there's multiple types of cryptocurrency. So it's not as straightforward right. as well. So more to come for sure. Huh. 
Re- really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about what it takes to build a diverse team. You, you talk about the importance of relationships and how trust is a two-way street and loyalty is important. How is that a business imperative? How do those factors translate into a business environment? Well, simply, if we were to take it, Barry, from let's talk about portfolio management for a second. For anyone who has sat down with a portfolio manager or with your financial advisor looking to invest in a U.S. equity portfolio, what you constantly hear is the benefits of diversification, that diversification spreads out your risk. So not that I'm the first to say this, but why doesn't that then matter when it comes to the people you hire and the diversification that you have on your teams? And diversification today, and I love where this whole discussion around diversity, equity, inclusion has kind of gone over the last several years, diversification doesn't mean today solely whether I'm a man or a woman, or I'm white or I'm non-white. You know, it's really diversification of thought because we can get into trouble when you have groupthink and you're not challenging status quo. So I do believe that building a diversified team is a great way to harness intellectual curiosity, to challenge status quo, and frankly, just to look through, look at the world through the lens of our shareholders and our institutional clients who are super diverse. Uh, And you mentioned earlier some of the data and science around this. It's been pretty clear from everybody who studied the space that the more diverse points of view you take into any sort of uh, situation, the the better the decision-making tends to be. I would agree with that. Now, obviously, you're preaching to the choir because right. I've grown up. I've grown up in this industry for 30 years as a woman. You know, I have the great honor of leading this organization. But I've had many experiences, like others on the call, where you walk into the room and you're the only one of your kind. However, you want to define that, and how sometimes that can um, silence you, or it never silenced me, by the way, but it could make it more difficult for some people to contribute and to participate in a conversation. And that's where running an organization and being more focused on inclusion, inclusion of thought, inclusion of all perspectives, and building a respectful work environment, you end up tapping into all of your employees rather than just a handful of the go-to employees that may stand out for one reason or another. So I think there's a lot of momentum in the market. I tend to see the world with the glass half full. I'm Uh the ultimate optimist, but I like what I'm seeing where the energy is. We have a lot of work to do, but there's definitely energy and commitment around it. Right. So the upside is the overall trend moving in the right direction and I don't want to use the word downside, but the downside protection is sort of what you alluded to earlier in terms of ESG as a risk factor. Let's let's talk about that G in mm-hmm. companies with a broad governance that it's not just run by an old boys network, but where there's mm-hmm. true diversity of thought and inclusion, uh, they tend to get into far less trouble than the sort of uh, groupthink organizations. Is, is that a fair statement? 
Well, um, sure, there's lots of statistics to support that or to challenge that. What I, what I would agree with you on and what I would say is that by having a diverse balance of people, and in particular now I'm lending through the lens of a female, of a woman, I do think that the, the qualifications or some of the awareness that I can bring to an organization it's a bit of a balance of that. We talk about the balance of the EQ and the IQ. You know, it's really listening. It's understanding. It's a different risk profile mm-hmm. that you can bring into it. It's, it's thinking about some of the risks and some of the factors and lending that to a conversation. We may all end up arriving at the same decision, but at least my, my view is that we would have considered many more factors when you have diversity of of thought being brought to that discussion. So what sort of advice do you give to women who are struggling to become advocates for themselves and advocates for women in the workplace, be it employment or promotion or, you know, governance as, as part of the member of the board or, or C-suite? This is a question I'm constantly asked and uh, I offer myself to any and all of the women in my company and, you know, friends and family. I'm the mother of two daughters, 28 and 25 years old, and I try to provide them with advice that, frankly, I was never given, but I had to learn on my own. And what I do, what I would love to see more women do is, Really advocate for yourself. Don't allow decisions to take place around you, but to really sit down with management and communicate. What are your career aspirations? Where do you want to go? And how can I help you get there? And position yourself for being truly qualified for a position. There's some other scientific work that's done that when there's a job description out there in the marketplace and it says, you know, need 10 years of experience, that if a woman has nine years and four months, she won't apply for that job. But if others, maybe a man, has, you know, seven years and nine months, he may apply for that job thinking that he's totally overqualified for it. So, We've taken the practice out of Monday to be a bit more flexible with job requirements. Instead of saying, you know, 10 years, maybe it's 7 to 10 years, or instead of looking for a graduate degree or a BA, just look for the skills and look for the requirements because we also want to attract from some of those urban communities and centers that may not be a natural path for financial services and asset and asset management. So for women who are out there, network, find an advocate, find a mentor, and make your career ambitions um, and the path that you want to pursue. Let people know about it and volunteer for projects and initiatives within the organization. Get involved across the organization and keep working at it. Huh. Re- really, really in, uh, intriguing. So Amundi has made very specific efforts to improve its approach to recruiting, be it women or people of color, uh, but generally looking for that sort of diverse background that leads to better decision-making. Tell us a little bit about what Amundi is doing to um, put put their money where their mouth is. So in, I would 
I would look back to, I joined in 214, 215, and I would say in 2017, early 2018, I worked in earnest with my executive team and my head of HR to put in place a DE&I framework for the entire organization. And we wanted to take a look at what did we need to do kind of internally in order to have success with this. And it comes back to culture. One, I, I believe that a more diverse group is a more positive culture. It's more inclusive. It's more respectful. I also know that you can't necessarily have success when something is top-down. So we needed this, this movement, if you will, this journey to be both top-down and bottom-up. The first thing that we did is we put all of my executive team and broader operating committees through unconscious bias training. And this was in 217, 218. Everybody has done it. Everyone is doing it. What we wanted to do was to get some grassroots effort. So we created an ambassador program. We asked employees across the organization who felt passionately about helping us to become a better employer of people of color or, or gender or any anything else for that matter to volunteer on the ambassador program. And they run monthly initiatives for the organization to raise awareness on LGBTQ, to raise awareness on disability, to raise awareness on, um, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month and to bring in awareness. What we recognize is that externally, this outreach, for a long time, the asset management industry has said, I'd love to hire more diverse candidates. I'm just not getting the resumes. And to us and to the industry, that's just no longer a good reason. We've got to figure out how do we get those resumes. So instead of recruiting just at the best and the brightest, um, at, you know, the, all of the named schools, we've created partnerships with different community colleges, with some of the, um, you know, historically black college university consortium that exists in and around North Carolina. We have partnered with an organization locally here in Boston called Bottom Line, which develops relationships with inner city students, you know, before they're ready to graduate. So we've changed how we're reaching out into the community. We've also, as I mentioned, modified how we put together job descriptions and job requirements. And we're extremely conscious that when we have a position open and that person who is coming into the organization may be a 27-year-old white woman or a 35-year-old African-American male, that let's make sure we don't have five 50-year-old white men or five 50-year-old white women being the people that this individual is interviewing. So they want to see a diverse organization. We've also, the last thing, Barry, that we've done is we've really started to measure our metrics. So you can't manage what you can't measure. And we are presently 30% women, 70% men. That's kind of consistent with where the industry is. We're 20% non-white, 80% white. Both of those numbers need to get higher, need to improve. And these efforts that we're putting in place uh, is the is one of the ways that we're looking to drive some change. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. Let let's talk a little bit about what's going on um, in investment today. Despite very low rates, we continue to see huge flows 
into fixed income. Uh, why is there so much demand for yield, and, and is that going to put a cap on interest rates? So, Barry, I wonder if we're seeing the demand and the flows in fixed income. Let's think about where we were almost a year ago today. So mm-hmm. in March of 2020, that kind of March-April time period, we saw such a significant sell-off in the fixed income and the credit markets. You know, on securitized credit, anywhere down from 20 to 30-plus percent. So part of the flow is in the latter half of 2020 and then continuing into 2021, there's a bit of a rebound and a bit of an opportunity opportunistically to kind of get exposure to some of the sell-off in the marketplace where fundamentals were really quite strong. It was some of these technical shifts that we were seeing in the marketplace. So investors on the fixed income side who were able to jump back into the marketplace have experienced some really attractive rates of return. What we're seeing today, though, if you think about the current state of where we are, where we are with the potential for inflation, um, you know, continuing and thinking about any, you know, any effects of a rising rate environment, we're seeing considerable flows in the short end of the marketplace, uh, in short duration fixed income, kind of ultra short duration fixed income. And we're also seeing very selectively for clients who are looking for still attractive yields, looking at the agency market, the agency mortgage-backed security marketplace, again, where active management uh, can apply a selective approach. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So given your very heavily institutional um, client base, both here and, and overseas, where else do you see investors going to find yield? It's not just treasuries, corporates, and tips. They're obviously looking elsewhere. Where else is that? So from a retail perspective, um, there's attractive opportunity in, you know, as we've seen closed-end funds launched in the marketplace. The benefit of closed-end funds, as your listeners and you probably know, is that you can apply some leverage, you know, selective leverage, 30, 35, 40%. So you can take a fairly low rate and with leverage achieve, you know, on the tax-exempt side, kind of 4%. We launched a closed-end fund not too long ago over the summertime that has over, uh, you know, a 4% target yield on a tax-exempt basis. That's very attractive, especially during the threat of, increases in personal taxes that we may all experience. Securitized credit is another place. But but from our perspective, investors don't have to only stay in fixed income 
to look for yield or to look for income. Multi-asset portfolios, which have grown in popularity over the last many years, is a way to achieve a higher level of monthly income. Some of the multi-asset funds do pay monthly income, and you can get levels that are much higher than just in a traditional short-duration product or an investment-grade product as well. Huh. And and I just wanted to clarify, your the investments are typically through separately managed accounts, or are they directly into mutual funds or other products like that? We're vehicle agnostic. So you don't so, care. We, we any wrapper, any um, vehicle that we can put our active management into. Uh, so we offer separate accounts, collective investment trust, mutual funds, and then the USITS, which is the sister of the mutual fund in the international markets. Hmm, quite interesting. So, so given your perspective from both the institutional side and the individual side over the years, how do you see asset management? as having evolved? What's different in 2021 from, say, 2001 or, or when you and I were both in college, 1981? So the, the lines between the distribution channels, what was on one side institutional and on one side retail and never the two shall meet, those lines have completely blurred. There is an institutionalization and a professionalism of all investment management selection. So whether you have an individual account at a wealth management firm, that wealth management firm has a research department that is selecting and doing the due diligence on the investment products that they're allowing to be kind of offered and distributed through their channels. And that level of rigor, that level of institutional due diligence is present today across all different channels. The second um, aspect of change over the last 20 or 30 years is with the growth of wealth, the growth of the high net worth investor, and the focus on maximizing after-tax return. We have seen new vehicles come to market that in the past were only for the institutional account or only for the retail account. So 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was less likely for large institutional investors, pension funds and the like to invest in mutual funds. And it was less likely for an individual investor to access a separately managed account. So when I said that we're vehicle agnostic, it's because the investor, whether it's institutional or individual Everyone has different goals and outcomes and considerations that the growth of of multiple vehicles and the desire for an asset management firm to unwrap active management and to offer it in a manner that helps to meet the outcome and the goals of the clients, that's vastly different. And the third aspect of what is vastly different is pricing. So 25 years ago, you had front-end loads that were let me see if I can remember this, seven and a quarter, eight plus percent. Right. And you now have today 90, over 90 to 95% of our flows into our mutual funds comes into um, an NAV level. So without a front end sales charge. So pricing has also evolved in order to be appropriate for the type of investor. Huh, that's interesting. So, so that's the past 10 or 20 years. Let's talk about the next decade or so now that you're running 
a large group of investors and $100 billion, what are you looking at as how the industry itself might change over the next decade or two? And what are you doing to anticipate that? So pricing will always be uh, front and center for the industry on a going forward basis. We have seen margins come down, but as an industry, we still enjoy very attractive profit margins. And so we're seeing pricing pressure come down, whether it's driven by, you know, zero, uh, you know, zero fee ETFs or where the total expense ratio is on mutual funds vis-a-vis where yields are, you know, that, that pressure will continue. So we have to be relevant and competitive from a pricing standpoint. We, if we were to look out, um, and this has happened already to a certain degree and in some parts of the world, but our industry is ripe for disruption, whether it is an entrant from outside of asset management who wants to come into this industry or how technology will disrupt our business. And we have to think about how will our business be disrupted and how do we, as a firm who, who frankly has been running money and managing money since 1928, how do we make sure that we're not disrupted, that we remain relevant? Artificial intelligence will become a bigger part. It's already present, but it will become a bigger part of portfolio management, of trying to streamline operational efficiencies, and uh, will also continue to experience, you know, the big getting bigger. So in the marketplace over the last several weeks, whether it's here in the United States or abroad, the consolidation that we're seeing, you know, I believe will continue to occur. So the big are going to get bigger. The small will have to be truly specialized and boutique and um, offer true value. And the, the middle is what has been squeezed and will continue to be squeezed in the future. Huh. That, that's really quite intriguing. So, so you mentioned things that might disrupt the existing firmament of finance. What are your thoughts on apps like Robinhood and that generation of millennials who seem to be their prime client base whom they've gamified investing for? So um, let's think of a couple of points in history. And, and I've always learned that when we as an industry or when media as a reporting entity starts to talk in terms of either or or versus or one or the other, right. that whoever is on the other side of that is quick to say, no way, that's not happening. So if you think back in the 1980s, it was at the time, Active versus passive, load versus no load. And what we see today in, in all of our own portfolios is that there is an appropriate place for passive, there's an appropriate place for active, there's an appropriate place for load, an appropriate place for no load. And I would suggest that there is, just as we as an asset management firm are vehicle agnostic, I think for those wealth management firms that make their services available to investors, they need to be delivery agnostic. So if a client wants to come in and sit down with me as a financial advisor, fantastic. If they want to do something over an app, 
terrific. If they want to do something over, you know, some type of a, a different, you know, uh, uh, Robin Hood or, or Nutmeg or any of those others, then what you're really wanting to do is to understand the client segmentation that's most attracted to that and tailor and customize your offering to that client segmentation and how they want to purchase what you're selling. Huh. So, so I think I think it's all relevant. You just have to figure out how to segment your offering and be appropriate in how you deliver it. So so you mentioned the sort of uh, tension between active and passive. You've managed to navigate that pretty well and, and stayed on uh, the right side of mix between active and passive. T- tell us how you managed to, to do that. Well, it is a constant battle. And, uh, you know, one of the recent statistics that I saw, this might be, you know, maybe a few months old or so, but seven of the last 10 years, uh, actively managed mutual funds have been in net outflows at the expense of kind of index and passive investing. Mm-hmm. And as a, you know, as, as we've talked about you and I earlier and before, when you take a look at where the concentration in the market has been in 2019, where you saw um, such a strong concentration of where the momentum was coming from, really, again, in those five or six stocks that were returning some 50 to 60% in their overall return, when you're an active manager and the returns are so heavily skewed in just a handful of stocks, you're going to underperform. You're not going to because you're diversified. You know, you're you're looking to put your conviction across, um, you know, multiple multiple different names. Today, when we're seeing more breath and what the market is delivering, we really believe that this is an opportunity for active management to contribute. Part of the other way that we've tried to fight this. Uh, you know, this this headwind of remaining actively managed is pricing is a key part of it. it. When you think about how the tenure of some of the mutual funds that are offered in the United States, and in particular for some firms who have been in business for decades, like we have at Amundi U.S., the pricing for those mutual funds were created 20, 25, 30 years ago when interest rates were 15%, when CDs were 12%, and your total expense ratio at that time was appropriate. And come 20, 25 years later, when you have interest rates in the single digit and you have other attractively priced vehicles, pricing has to be key. So we're constantly evaluating, in particular with our mutual funds, with my board of trustees, looking at the market, looking where pricing is, and making the necessary decisions on reducing the pricing of our management fees and our total expense ratios in order to be more competitive, in order to have the best opportunity to achieve an attractive total return for our shareholders. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I know I only have you for a few more minutes, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, uh, what are you streaming these days? Tell us what's kept you entertained uh, during lockdown, be it Netflix or Amazon or pro- podcasts or whatever. Well, thank goodness for streaming, right, over the last year and a half or so. So we, you know, the rules in the house, uh, it's something that my husband and I will enjoy and like to watch. So it, it can have extreme violence or be too soupy saucy, on the other hand. So some of the um, some of the, the streaming shows that we've watched, uh, we completed Ozark. We just completed what is it? Nine Perfect Strangers. We've watched uh, The Mayor of East Ham. I think we also watched as well, and we just finished Queen of the South. I don't hmm. know if you've seen some of those, but maybe you can add some of those to your no, list. No, that's an that's an interesting list right, right there. Pe- people are always asking that question. I know because um, they want uh, they want some some perspective. We, we, that that's a that's a pretty interesting list. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped shape your career. So the the early mentor that helped shape my career was when I was at MFS. He actually just retired not too long ago. It's uh, Jerry Potts. He was the head of the bank distribution channel. He hired me at MFS, and he was just a super mentor to me. He saw my strengths. He picked me up when I was down. He challenged me when I was getting too comfortable. He always had a super sense of humor, and he was always my advocate. And he was someone that um, that really helped me move throughout the organization. And as I've gone on in time, I would say that mentoring, um, as you achieve kind of growth in your career, comes less from people, at least for me, in and around my organization, and more from people that I've um, reached out to, either it's other leaders in asset management firms where we're sharing certain challenges, it's kind of affinity groups that you may belong to where you can kind of share some of your challenges. But to me, that mentoring in your first 10 or 15 years of, of your career is super important. So shout out to Mr. Jerry Potts. What are some of your favorite books? What are you reading right now? So I did, I haven't opened it yet, but I did um, order recently um, the new Chris Wallace book, The Countdown Bin Laden. Um, That one is something that I want to pick up. And then a very quick read. I got together with a group of high school and junior high school friends not too long ago, and one of my friends gave each and every one of us a book by Charlie uh, McAfee, I think is his last name. It's called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. Huh. You literally can read it in, if it takes you longer than 15 minutes, you've, you know, you've daydreamed. It's a quick read, but it is so uplifting about um, hope and generosity and care and it was one of those great little field book, feel-good books in the middle of a pandemic. 
I've given it to my girls and I've given it to a couple of other other friends as well. So that, those are a couple that just come to come to mind, Barry. Huh. Very very intriguing. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either investment or uh, financial management? One, I would say it is a fantastic career path that is professionally and intellectually rewarding where you surround yourself with smart, capable, engaging people. So I, I think it's, a, it's just a terrific career path. Start networking before you graduate. So use your college alumni networks. Use LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I mean, it sounds so basic, but I'm surprised of uh, how many don't use it. And let's not forget the art of handwriting. Uh, we're all getting, especially in this Zoom day and environment, phone calls have gotten away, but we're getting hundreds and hundreds of emails. Uh, it, it's okay to drop a handwritten note and be persistent. Part of what an employer wants to see is your ability to have tenacity and overcome objections. So if after one, two, or three tries, you're not getting a response, don't just walk away. Keep going at it. Figure out a different way to get in front of the company that you're um, interested in. And last but not least, and this should be in the wheelhouse of the young, the young colleagues who are coming out of college, do your due diligence and research on a company. Everything is available online. Please don't come and sit down with me and say, you know, how many assets under management do you have or how many countries are you in? Like, understand the company that you're talking to. Huh. Good, good advice to say the very least. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investment management today that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started? So I wish today what is so clear to me only by trial and error. And I would say broadly from a career perspective, it's okay to take risks. You're either going to fail and you'll learn from it or taking the risk will be rewarded. And at the time, I didn't realize risks I may have been taking, changing jobs, changing companies, changing profiles. Um, but I think taking a risk is really important. And, and that's more career advice that I would offer. From a world of investing perspective is, you know, 30 years ago, the market was uh, pretty domestic and not as global or as connected geopolitically or as multinational. And um, whether it was something I wish I knew 30 years ago or thought about, or maybe we just needed to all evolve over time, but today, thinking beyond your borders is super important. Hmm. Real, really fascinating. Thank you, Lisa Jones, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the 386 prior discussions we've had. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, all the usual podcast places. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our team that helps put together this conversation each week. Mohammed is my audio engineer. 
Michael Batnick is my head of research. Paris Wald is my booker slash producer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.